Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, we'll be finishing uh, the reading of the book of James here today. Our reading comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. James proclaims the worthlessness of riches, not the worthlessness of the rich. Today's money will be worthless when Christ returns, so we should spend our time accumulating the kind of treasures that will be worthwhile in God's eternal kingdom. See, money is not the problem. Christian leaders need money to live and to support their families. Missionaries need money to help them spread the good news. Churches need money to do their work effectively. It's the love of money that leads to evil and causes some people to oppress others in order to get more. This is a warning to all Christians who are tempted to adopt worldly standards rather than God's standards, as well as an encouragement to all those who are oppressed by the rich. We'll read here in the book of James today about innocent people. This refers to defenseless persons, probably poor laborers. Poor people who could not pay their debts were thrown into prison or forced to sell all their possessions. At times, they were even forced to sell their family members into slavery. With no opportunity to work off their debts, poor people often died of starvation. God called this murder. Hoarding money, exploiting employees, and living self-indulgently will not escape God's notice. We'll read about the farmer here today. The farmer must wait patiently for his crops to grow. He cannot hurry the process. But he does not take the summer off and hope that all goes well in the fields. There is much work to do to ensure a good harvest. In the same way, we must wait patiently for Christ's return. We cannot make Him come back any sooner. But while we wait, there is much work that we can do to advance God's kingdom. Both the farmer and the Christian must live by faith looking toward the future reward for their labors. Don't live as if Christ will never come. Work faithfully to build His kingdom. The King will come when the time is right. Now, when things go wrong, you know, we tend to grumble against and blame others for our miseries. Blaming others is easier than owning our share of the responsibility. But it can be both destructive and sinful. Before you judge others for their shortcomings, remember that Christ the judge will come to evaluate each of us. He will not let us get away with shifting the blame to others. Now many prophets suffered and were persecuted, like Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah. A person with a reputation for exaggeration or lying often can't get anyone to believe him on his word alone. Christians should never become like that. Always be honest so that others will believe your simple yes or no. By avoiding lies, half-truths, and omissions of the truth, you will become known as a trustworthy person. As we finish our reading of the book of James today, here in the New Testament. November 21st, the New Testament, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. 
The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. This is both the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible. It may have been written by Ezra after the temple was rebuilt as a repetitive meditation on the beauty of God's Word and how it helps us stay pure and grow in faith. Psalm 119 has 22 carefully constructed sections, each corresponding to a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet and each verse beginning with the letter of its section. Almost every verse mentions God's Word. Such repetition was common in the Hebrew culture. People did not have personal copies of the scriptures to read as we do, so God's people memorized His Word and passed it along orally. The structure of this psalm allowed for easy memorization. Remember, God's Word, the Bible, is the only sure guide for living a pure life. You know, we're drowning in a sea of sexual images and sinful attractions. Everywhere we look, we find temptation to fill our minds with thoughts of sexual relationships that God wouldn't approve of. The writer asks a question that troubles us all. How do we stay pure in a contaminating environment? Well, we cannot do this on our own, but uh, must have counsel and strength more dynamic than the attempting influence around us. Where can we find that strength and wisdom? 
but by reading God's Word and doing what it says and being in relationship with godly people. Hiding, keeping God's Word in our hearts, is a deterrent to sin. This alone should inspire us to memorize Scripture, but memorization alone will not keep us from sin. We must also put God's Word to work in our lives, making it a vital guide for everything we do. Now, most of us chafe under rules, or we think they restrict us from doing what we want. At first glance, it may seem strange to hear the writer talk of rejoicing in following God's laws as much as in having great riches. But God's laws were given to free us to be all He wants us to be. They restrict us from doing what might cripple us and keep us from being our best. God's guidelines help us follow His path and avoid paths that lead to destruction. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. Aleph. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey His laws and search for Him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in His paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Baith, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Proverbs chapter 28, verses 6 and 7. Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. Young people who obey the law are wise. Those with wild friends bring shame to their parents. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Welcome. Good morning. I hope you're well. Um, It's good to be back this morning. Um, For those of you that haven't heard, the last Sunday that we'll be uh, gathering here in Grove City and also in this particular uh, location will be uh, Sunday, November 30th. So including today, that's three Sundays, three more, three more weeks. And so we're moving to the Hilltop, Franklinton uh, neighborhoods and uh, we'll be closer to downtown. And we'll actually be gathering, we'll be meeting in uh, Hilltop Lutheran Church. Um, so we've been praying with uh, Upper Arlington Lutheran Church, which is a big, a big church in town. They own the building down there. They have multiple locations. We've been praying with them. We've also been meeting and praying with Veritas Community Church, which is in the Short North neighborhood, about a potential partnership with all three of us um, to work together, to advance God's causes, to advance God's kingdom um, in those neighborhoods. And so we've been talking through this for the past number of months, and 
kind of beginning to come to some conclusions and um, praise God for, for, for what he's doing. And so these are exciting times, but this is most definitely a faith walk. And what I mean by that is we don't have all the answers and we don't necessarily know how it's all going to look, but we know that we feel, I mean, I mean this, that we feel God kind of taking us in, a, in this direction. And so I know that, that this is all coming up. I know that, um, and one thing I don't know is I don't know exactly the time we'll be gathering. We're working through all the particular details. And so my, my request from all of you is just that you'd bear with us, that you'd pray um, for your church, that you would pray that God would continue to lead and guide you um, in, in whatever, wherever he's kind of directing your path and your steps forward. And so... Uh, our plan is to have a blog post up, a video up um, sometime this week that will give all of those details once we kind of iron those out with all parties involved. And so like we've been doing the past couple weeks, um, we're going to do a Q&A at the end of service if anybody has questions. I encourage you to ask questions. It'll help everybody else that's here um, to kind of know what's going on. And so if you have those right now even, uh, maybe write it down and, and you'll have the opportunity to ask those at the end of our, uh, of our gathering this morning. Okay? Awesome. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll jump into our text this morning. Jesus, um, so grateful um, for your spirit here this morning, that you dwell amongst your people, that you love us. I think um, a really fault that I've had to repent of, Lord, is just my neglect of your spirit. I guess in a response to maybe my... my um, my, me seeing abuses of that and wanting to run away from that. And God, you're just kind of beckoning us, I think, toward yourself. And we don't need a rote, um, dry, just intellectual, you know, knowledge of you. That's good. But God, we need to know you. And we, we need to be with you. And we need to, to walk with you. In, in the New Testament, there's just, even the old, there's just evidence of you dwelling amongst your people, of you actually experientially moving in your people. And we want that. We need that. Because there's folks in this room that are tired, and they're weary, and they're struggling, and they've got fears. There's folks in this room that, that there's great things happening, and there's a lot of joyous opportunities, but they don't know where they're supposed to go. And God, we need you to show up. And so I pray that we would... Um, we wouldn't have anything in our life that would keep that from happening. That you'd convict us of sin today. That you'd speak your truth over us today. That our posture, our, our heart's desire would, would, yeah, be to know you like we just sang, but to be obedient to you, to follow wherever you would lead us, wherever you would have us go. And so we praise your name. We love you. Amen. So this is going to be our last week. Uh, we've been in um, uh, Luke 15 for about, this is our sixth week. And so this will be our last week. Um, in the prodigal of the two lost sons, or prodigal story of the two lost sons, whatever we called it. Um, I can't remember now. But we've, we've looked, uh, so far we've looked at the story of the younger brother. Uh, we've, but then we put that into the context of the whole story, and then we looked at the elder brother. Um, and then we put the story of the two brothers into the context of the whole chapter, right? There's three parables. And so we saw them both in, in the context of, of the whole story. And each time, I think our, our goal was to see another important aspect, another important um, facet to, to the story and to the message that Christ um, was trying to convey. 
But I think that we're not quite done yet. We need, we need to see the story in the context of the whole Bible, of the whole scriptures. And so Jesus, we know that Jesus, he was immersed in the scriptures. I mean, uh, Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time. <clears throat> and so this story, this parable in particular, I think he's giving us the essence of the whole biblical storyline. He's giving us the essence of the fact that there's one vivid narrative. There's one vivid story, if you will. And so if we see that, my hope for today is that we'll almost see, see this story. We'll get like a, a 30,000 um, view up of, like, of what this looks like. So this story in the context of the bigger story, God's whole word. And so today we're going to learn particularly about one, the human condition. We're going to learn about the divine solution. And we're going to see um, this new communion. And so uh, for one last time, at least here for a while, let's read, um, let's read Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, and this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to, the, said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And he refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this son, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that's the word of the Lord. 
for today. But first, I want to hone in on what we're calling the human condition. And so let's, let's just again, let's read 13 through 17 and really, really focus on this with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he, said to himself, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. See, the younger son, his sin had turned him into an exile. He wasn't allowed to come back home, right? It, it turned him in an, in, into an exile from his home. And so, like many of us, like many in the world, um, his sin had alienated him from the father, right? He went off to a far place to do whatever he wished. And so, so what we know is, is at this point, he, he was no longer a part of the family. He had, uh, in fact, disgraced his family. He had, he had disgraced uh, the entire community, in a sense. Um, they, everybody would have been outraged. Everybody would have been upset. He would have had to take his money, and he would have had to, to go somewhere far away. And he did. The text tells us that. And I think, I think what we have to realize is when he did this, when the younger son did this, he became an image of the entire human race. It's really a picture of all of us. Of all of us. For, see, because what we know is that, is that we were made for life in the Garden of Eden. We were made for life with God. What this means is that our true home is in, is in the presence of God, with God, under God's rule. He's creator, we're creation. We were made for that, but we lost our home. We're all exiles. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Right? Peter's calling us sojourners, exiles. This language is that we're in a place that's not home. We're in a place that we weren't made for. Because see, home, if you think about home, home is the place that truly fits. It truly suits us. That's what home is. We, we were made to know. We were made to serve God. We were made to live in his presence, we were made to enjoy his love and his beauty forever. However, because we wanted to be our own savior, because we wanted to be our own lords, we lost God, right? We lost God and therefore we wander in the world and experience what, what Tim Keller calls eeriness. We fell far away from our home. We experience an anxiety, a spiritual nausea that comes from never feeling at home in this world. 
We have this existential angst that the needs to fi- we, we, we desire to find satisfaction. We desire to find a purpose. There's something in us that wants to matter. There's something in us that wants to be important. There's something in us that desires to find meaning. But we can't find those things outside of God. We can't find those things outside of God. Because the world doesn't address the needs of our hearts. We long, listen to this. You, you and I, you know what we long for? We long for a love that can't be lost. We long for a love uh, that can't be lost. We, we long for, to escape from death. We, we long to see justice triumph over wrongdoing. But what we have to understand is although fighting for those things might be noble, such things will never be found here. And so we see the younger brother, he, he, he comes to his senses, Luke 15, 17, it says, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, See, he was out, you know, taking the inheritance, um, spending it however he wished. In verse 30, the older brother refers to prostitutes. We see reckless living, just doing whatever he wants. But, but there's this interesting, this verse that says, but when he came to himself, he realized his sin. And then he, re- and he realizes in this moment, like a lot of us do, that he needed to go home. He wasn't fulfilled. That there was something more. There was something more. He realized he was an outcast. And so he was, he was debating on how he was going to approach his father. And, and he knew he was in exile. So he, he thought up this plan of how in the world would he ever be received back. But still, he went home. He went home. So the second big point for today is this idea of the divine solution that God offers us. So verse 31 and 32 says this. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. This is the father talking to the, to the elder brother. You're always with me and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And if you were here, I think it was seven weeks ago, we watched a video of Tim Keller kind of unpacking this, the whole story. But the centerpiece of the parable is a feast. The centerpiece of the whole parable is this feast. And so the father, he throws a feast and it's filled with, there's music and there's dancing and, and, the, and, and you know, there's the, these great delicacies and and this marks, this feast was meant to mark the idea of reconciliation the idea of restoration of the son, of the younger brother. But he says it. He says that when the younger son came home, we had to celebrate. There wasn't a choice. We had to celebrate. But why is the feast so important? Why is the feast so important? Well, what we know is that in the Old Testament, meals would uh, ratify covenants. Um, they, it would... Meals would, would be um, a place where you would celebrate victories. And, and meals would mark all special family occasions and transitions, such as births and weddings and funerals. 
But again, let's ask, why, why is the feast, why is the meal so important? Well, again, in ancient times, in ancient times, meals were these prolonged affairs. They were very long. Uh, a lot of the time, the meal would last all evening. It would go late into the night, usually until bedtime. Because if you think about it, at this time, there wasn't a whole lot to do after the sun went down. There wasn't a whole lot of um, things you could do to entertain yourselves. Uh, and you just spent the whole day working very um, labor, laboriously in, in the fields or whatever. And so, and so you would just uh, feast with your family. So evening meals became the center of family life, and therefore they became also a symbol and practice of intimacy. Of intimacy, of knowing one another deeply. But I don't think we need to just look back to first century people to to really grasp this, because it's at meals that I think a lot of us feel uh, most at home at times. In a meal, your body's getting what it needs, the pleasure and the nourishment of food of rest, right? But also it's at meals that your heart is getting what it needs. Laughter and friendship, communion, relationship. Even today, I don't know what your family looks like, but a good family reunion, it's, it's, or, or what, some kind of homecoming, you eat together. You enjoy one another. It's at it's these great feasts that, Feasts that no matter what else is maybe going on in your life or whatever struggles that you're having, that you can feel at home in these settings. And so the feast means that God will bring us home someday. The feast means that God will bring us home someday. As Matthew 8, 8 11 says, as Jesus says, many, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, because our true elder brother, Jesus Christ, God will someday make this world home again because of what Jesus has done. He's going to wipe away death. He's going to wipe away suffering. He's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes and he'll give us bodies that run and that never grow weary. And when we get there, we'll say something like uh, one of the characters said at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. He said, I've come home at last. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it. See, the younger brother, he didn't expect to be brought back into the family. He didn't expect a feast since he'd sinned. But that's what he gets. And the elder brother objects. He gets angry. Why? Why? Because meals signified acceptance. Meals signified relationship. The religious leaders at the time, they would forbid believers from eating with sinners. Because to eat with someone was to receive him in a sense, as family. And so how could you do that for somebody who'd rejected God? That was the objection. How could you do that with somebody who'd rejected God? Besides that, isn't it a common theme in a lot of people that those that you fraternize with, those that you hang out with, those that you spend time with, you'll become like them. This was the fear. 
If you eat with sinners, it was reason that you would become a sinner. And so at this time, the Jewish dietary laws, all their regulations, all their rules, they were extremely elaborate. They were seen as, as, as an effective way to keep Jews from being polluted by all the p- pagan practices of their neighbors. And so the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I can't remember the exact, it's roughly 400-ish years leading up to Jesus' day, there was a preoccupation with ritual purity. Because what happened was Judea, the place where Israel resided, um, there was just ruler after ruler that would, that would reign over them. That was not just, that was pagan, that didn't believe in the God of, of the Old Testament. And so what they did was they would add all these regulations and all these rules that we wouldn't ever become even close to these pagan sinners. And so meals more and more became boundary markers between the righteous and the sinners. But what's beautiful about our God is Jesus, we see him shattering this practice, right? We see him shattering this practice, uh, you know, right, right at the beginning of the text in Luke 4, 15.2, he eats with the notoriously wicked. He eats with the marginalized. And we see the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, right? How can he do this? How can sinners be included in this feast? So the last big point is, is this idea of a new communion. Verse 32 says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. So what we know about the cross, what we know about the New Testament and the gospel is that Jesus leaves his true home. Philippians 2. He, he wanders on earth without a home. We see that in Matthew 8.20. And he's finally crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem, a sign of exile and rejection. As Hebrews 13, 11, and 12 testifies. Jesus experiences the exile that the human race deserves, that we deserve. Jesus experiences the sojourning and the exile that you deserve, that I deserve. On the cross, Jesus loses fellowship and communion with the Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 45. And so the story we constantly have to remind ourselves is he's forsaken and cast out of the family so that we can be brought in, so that we can be welcomed in. Your effort doesn't get you in, man. Your goodness doesn't save you. It's only Christ. So as we can see from the parable itself, Jesus, listen to this, Jesus calls younger brothers to repent. He does not only eat with them for the sake of being inclusive or just to defy convention and make all the elder brothers mad. Rather, Jesus calls people to change. He calls people to change. And he gives us the foretaste of this great feast and what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. He gives us a foretaste of that. Because what we have to understand is to sit at the communion table, as we do every week, 
You don't have to be perfect, only repentant. What do I mean by that? The communion table, the Lord's Supper, is, a, is, a, is an example of God's Jesus life, death, burial, resurrection. His blood that was shed, his body that was broken. When you partake of that bread and that juice or wine, depending on where you are, you are identifying with Christ. Repentance means that we turn from our way and we say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to pursue you. So we don't have to be perfect, but we have to be repentant. So anyone can come and anyone does come. So think of it like this. The ultimate son who is, who is dead and cut off is now alive again. And so we have to celebrate. We have to celebrate. And the way we celebrate what, is, what has been done for us is to create a new community of forgiven sinners, which anyone can be a part of. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what class you would be in. It doesn't even matter what your background is. Any repentant sinner can come and be a brother and a sister because of the death and resurrection of our true elder brother who took our exile, who took our punishment upon himself. The death and resurrection of Jesus and the love of the Father creates a new community of men and women who regularly break bread together to celebrate their new life and communion that they have with Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It's grace. It's not enough just to have an individual personal relationship with God through Christ. God calls us to be an active, he calls us in to be an active part of the feast. He calls us to enter into this new community, the family of God. And that, that is where together we become conformed into the image of the one who did all this for us. We're to point people to the one who can fix them, Christ. We're not to point people to our amazingness, to ourselves. We're to point people to Christ. And the only way we become more and more like Christ is by being a part of his family the church. Is it broken? Yeah. Is it made up of sinners? Yes. But by God's grace, we'll repent and we'll grow in faith and trust in Christ. Amen? And it's this very truth, it's this very reason that informs why we're going, why we're switching neighborhoods, why we're going to the hilltop. Jesus leaves his own true home, like we just said, he wanders without a home. He's finally crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem a sign of exile and rejection. We read that a couple minutes ago. Jesus experiences the exile that the human race deserves. He's alienated and cast out so that we can be brought home. We would all say amen to that. We would all get fired up about that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to leave the comfortable. We're going to leave the predictable. We're going we're to go to a place where broken people reside. 
where other churches, Pharisees and scribes will grumble at those people. But in this, I believe that we're modeling our God. We're going there much like Christ came here. See, yes, I, I would exhort all of you to believe in God, to become a Christian, of course. But you must realize that your faith in God is not for yourself. God calls his people to restore and renew the world in which he made. And I just, I believe that we have an amazing opportunity. It's going to require the body of Christ. It's going to require all of us. This new community we just talked about to participate. All of us. None of us are exempt. I believe God's gifted you. Every one of you, man. Every every one of you. Jesus has saved you. The Lord, God has invited you into his family at much expense to himself. And so I encourage you to approach his throne of grace. That he's good to you despite the fact you don't deserve it. That's grace. That's what grace means. And it's the unique aspect of Christianity. Step into the brokenness. Trust him to use you for his glory and for the flourishing of hurting people. God is calling us. He's beckoning us towards a wonderful redemption. I'm reminded of Revelation 21.5, which says, I love this text. It's the last book of the Bible, in case you're curious. He says, And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. And I'll close with this. We get to participate in what's called the already not yet. Meaning Jesus has died for our sins and we're in a time between his glorious redemption and his second return. Until then, until he comes again, we work towards shalom. The Hebrew word meaning, uh, some people say peace, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, when, when, when you unpack it, it says peace, peace which you know, it emphasizes just absolute flourishing, total restoration of what was. We work towards that. We labor to restore God's kingdom here and now for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you invite us into your story. God, just break apart our, our selfish worldview, our worldview that sees everything with us in the center. So many of us live our lives in our culture, and it makes sense because our culture screams at us the, the, the message, you are in control of your life, you matter, you, uh, you control your destiny. You're important. You are what matters. In the Bible, God, you call us, you say, you're the center of reality. You're God, we're not. But the beautiful thing is, because of what Christ has done, you invite us into your story. 
We're all longing to be a part of that, God. That's why we struggle. That's why we go to drugs and to sex and to success and to family and all these things we try to find value from, but we can't. And we're always a little bit empty and there's moments, there's glimpses of joy, but we still feel empty because we were not made for here. We are sojourners and we are strangers in this foreign place and you are calling us to yourself. You're calling us home. And in the time that we're here on this earth, you're calling us to advance shalom, peace, peace, joy, in a broken world. A world that's desperate for good news. But often what we give them is self-righteousness or apathy. God, I pray that we model you, that we look to you Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.